Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, the public policy voice of the Catholic Church in Minnesota. We're here to help you connect uh, faith and politics to bridge the gap between Catholic social teaching and public policy. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director, joined by Rachel Herbeck, our Policy and Outreach Coordinator. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, good to be back here. I'm excited about our show today. It's going to be really interesting. Got some interesting topics. A big thank you, first of all, goes out to Relevant Radio AM 1330 for letting us record here at their very fine studio in Golden Valley, Minnesota, and especially to our sponsor for this podcast, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we're going to be discussing something that's really heavy in the news right now, and that is the uh, confirmation process for Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, a judge of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals who's been nominated by President Trump to fill the slot on the Supreme Court uh, vacated by Justice Anthony Kennedy. Following our conversation with our guest today, we'll talk some classic Catholic social teaching and on a related topic, uh, the 20th anniversary of the U.S. Bishop's document, Living the Gospel of Life. So it's one thing to say that we need to build the pro-life movement in the courts to make sure that every life is cherished and every life is respected in law, but what does that mean to live it in our own daily lives? So Rachel and I will spend some time reflecting on that and we'll also uh, offer, again, some practical tips for translating your faith into practical action. And of course, we'll finish the show again with some sacred music performed by a local Catholic youth choir and really looking forward to that as well. So Without further ado, we have our first guest with us, a very, very uh, important and uh, heroic person in the pro-life community, uh, Clark Forsyth. Clark is the Senior Counsel for American United, Americans United for Life and the author of Abuse of Discretion, the Inside Story of Roe versus Wade. Welcome, Clark Forsyth. Thank you very much, Jason, and, and uh, thanks, Rachel, for having me. You've been uh, really a, a strong leader in the pro-life community for a number of years, particularly in the legal uh, the legal side of things. What really compelled you uh, to spend your life and your vocation working on uh, the pro-life cause? Well, I think a combination of things. One was getting to law school and realizing uh, what a terrible decision Roe versus Wade was. And uh, secondly, it was... Uh, taking the initiative to volunteer for Americans United for Life um, when I was in law school and right after law school. And the combination of uh, the legal teaching and the practical involvement and learning how I could apply my legal training to public policy was, uh, I think, a big part of the uh, the inspiration for me to devote my career to uh, comprehensive protection for human life in the law. And here we're definitely in an important time for that question. And uh, in the context of Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings, uh, Roe v. Wade is very much in the news. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh's nomination, of course, is of interest to Catholics, uh, precisely because Judge Kavanaugh is a Catholic judge himself. And there are certainly a lot of issues on which the next Supreme uh, the Court and Judge Kavanaugh could have an impact. But definitely um, this area of Roe v. Wade and uh, abortion and the pro-life cause is of particular importance. In fact, the U.S. bishops have started a nine-week novena uh, to make sure that the future Supreme Court, however it's constituted, uh, protects life uh, from conception to natural death. So this is a very consequential 
appointment. Clark, a lot of attention is going to be focused during these confirmation hearings uh, for Judge Kavanaugh on whether he will reverse Roe uh, versus Wade. Is it likely that he would do so when on the court? And what are some considerations, uh, a potential Justice Kavanaugh and his consideration of the abortion license that may some commentators may have missed? What else is out there that we should consider? Well, I think it's it's likely that he and uh, the other justices on the court will see abortion cases and have the opportunity to reconsider Roe. But I think your your question points up the difference between legislators and politicians and judges. Uh, politicians promise what they're going to do, but uh, since judges don't vote on public policy, they vote on cases. Uh, judges shouldn't forecast or prejudge their decision on any case or any future case. So I, I think that Judge Kavanaugh will defer any questions about how he will rule on any future cases, as a good judge should. But there will be cases, even as early as this fall, which will address abortion. And there are a number in the lower federal courts. Uh, the, the cases this fall will involve whether the states can exclude abortion providers from their federal Medicaid dollars. Um, and there will be a number of other cases coming up in 2019, 2020, 2021. And, um, but, but, um, and in any abortion case, the court could uh, readdress Roe. Uh, however, I think uh, the new majority will, will, will perhaps uh, uh, proceed slowly, let's put it that way, uh, over a series of cases. Um, but, but if and when they uh, forthrightly address Roe itself, they will look at, is it settled uh, as a decision? And I think it's, it's immensely unsettled. They'll look at whether it was wrongly decided uh, at, the, at the outset because it was a bad interpretation of the Constitution. Is it unworkable? And I think it is, has been shown to be unworkable. And then have the facts changed? Has the law changed? And are reliance interests in the Roe v. Wade decision substantial? Those are the, those are the basic considerations. So were the court to overrule Roe and Casey, you've mentioned this already, that some of their considerations, how might uh, they, you know, besides its unworkability, uh, what are some, are there policy reasons that they would use to say that uh, Roe is unworkable or, um, you know, what are some of the justifications they might use to overrule this longstanding precedent? Well, uh, whenever the court has applied its dis- Roe v. Wade decision in something like 35 cases over the last 45 years, uh, I, I think it has showed how unworkable it is because they, they've always got to jury-rig the standards. They've always got to change it. It's always, they're always uh, uh, changing what Roe said and how it's applied, and there's never any, has been any incon- uh, consistency. There's never been any consistency. So uh, they're just flip-flopping back and forth about applying the the made-up rule in Roe versus Wade, and that shows it's unworkable. But um, you know, your your article in the Minnesota Law Review in 2005 has always inspired me because it's a great uh, application of of the of the um, factor has the have the facts changed, and all kinds of facts have changed since 1973. And the assumptions that the court relied on in '73 have changed, just in two in two ways. One is 
ultrasound came on the commercial market in the United States a couple of years after Roe vs. Wade, completely changed public opinion, blindsided the justices, and has changed public opinion ever since. And secondly, as you point out, there's a growing body of data, especially international medical, peer-reviewed medical data, showing long-term risks to women after abortion. Neither of these were present for the justices in 73. So as we're talking about, you know, this possibility, obviously you said that there would be a number of cases while they have an opportunity to address it. But, you know, the, the Roe case is really the one that people are focusing on. So what impact really would, would it have on the pro-life movement, do you think, if, if, if a future Supreme Court would actually decline to reverse the decision but identify a few more areas where regulation does not constitute an undue burden on a woman's access to abortion. So really, what would the effect be if they, um, if access would be further restricted, but the right would remain in place? Well, frankly, uh, I've been uh, working for AUL for 33 years, and uh, Roe versus Wade is 45 years old, and the pro-life movement all over the country has been tenacious. So if a future Supreme Court uh, refused to overturn it, uh, I think the movement would, uh, uh, you know, uh, not blink and just move ahead. And uh, secondly, um, it's it's never been an, you know, all or nothing proposition of strategy for the pro-life movement. The pro-life movement has pursued a multifaceted strategy. So there are pregnancy care centers that provide outreach to women and their babies. There's there's politics, there's the law, there's medicine, um, there's media and public education, there's civil protests. And this multifaceted strategy has been the strength of the pro-life movement, to my mind, mm-hmm. and I think it'll just be full speed ahead um, on the abortion issue. Uh, and uh, so I think, uh, and, and after I wrote and published abuse of discretion, I was convinced that Roe versus Wade will inevitably be overturned because the court cannot continue as the National Abortion Control Board. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the destructive impact of the court's role has is becoming clearer, I think, year after year. And, I, and I, with a new majority on the court, I think they will more objectively look at the negative impact of the Roe decision. So I, I think that we are heartened and encouraged by the possibility that Roe may, in fact, go into the dustbin of history. But what happens then? Uh, just hypothetically speaking, Clark, uh, if uh, Roe is overturned, we know that that doesn't necessarily, you know, save one life. There's a lot of work to be done after that. How do you see that landscape unfolding were such an eventuality to happen? Well, there's an urban legend out there, as you know, that Rovers, uh, overturning Roe means that the court makes abortion illegal. Uh, and that's wrong. Uh, or that some federal statute comes back into effect that makes abortion illegal nat- nationwide. That's wrong. Or that 50 state prohibitions come back into effect immediately, and that's wrong. What, it, what Rovers, overturning Roe means is that the issue go back, it goes back to the states, although I think there'll be some skirmishing in Congress. But generally, it goes back to the states, and whatever laws are on the books uh, on that date could, could possibly be enforced. Um, and, and the, but the simple answer is that um, in eight to ten states, there are prohibitions in the first trimester that 
might be enforceable, but in every other state, uh, it, abortion will be legal uh, at least to 20 weeks, or if not viability, or throughout pregnancy. So there will be little immediate short-term change. But you can be sure that there will be a media firestorm and all kinds of confusion. And uh, I think the dust will settle over one or two or three years in the state legislatures. And I think you'll see the country move toward a more pro-life public policy, um, majority public, supported by more majority public opinion. But, of course, there'll be states like California and New York that I think will maintain abortion on demand for the foreseeable future. So rolling up our sleeves and really working to persuade people that um, tighter limits on abortion are best for the woman and best for the child, then it sounds like uh, we've got a lot of work ahead of us for that to happen. What uh, Do you see, Clark, uh, an impact on judicial politics at the state level where we see uh, confer- judicial confirmations and appointments and elections at the state level taking on the same sort of uh, dynamic that uh, confirmations to the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal appellate courts have? Well, hopefully it won't be as partisan, but I but I think we're already seeing it. Um, the abortion advocates are already moving from the federal courts and shifting at least some of their attention to the state courts. Just in the last month or two, the Iowa Supreme Court, uh, in a, a move of judicial activism, uh, adopted a uh, or created a state constitutional right to abortion. Uh, thereby blocking at least some pro-life laws in Iowa. And this is an initiative of abortion advocates. If, we, if we're not going to win in the federal courts, if Roe versus Wade might be threatened, we're going to go into the state Supreme Courts and try to create a state constitutional right to abortion. So, uh, uh, I mean, starting today, uh, uh, state court judges are very important in how state Supreme Court judges are appointed in the states is going to be of increasing importance. We have that in Minnesota where um, abortion has been declared a state constitutional right, though we have a long history of state regulation of abortion. Um, it's certainly the, the fact that our Supreme state Supreme Court has declared it a right is something that uh, Minnesotans will have to reckon with going forward as we craft legislative solutions related to abortion. Definitely. Um, as you know, um, a couple of years ago, I think it was the 2014 election in Tennessee, uh, Tennesseans approved a state constitutional amendment to overturn a state Supreme Court decision blocking um, state abortion limits and pro-life legislation. And with that adoption of that amendment in Tennessee, pro-life legislation has moved pretty well through the uh, Tennessee uh, legislature and, and signed by the governor. So a number of states will have to give attention to mounting a grassroots effort, effort to pass a state constitutional amendment. Now, one of the obstacles, it seems, Clark, in that dynamic is that uh, unless, uh, because abortion has become such a partisan issue, um, at least here in Minnesota, um, even though we have had a long history of pro-life Democrats, it's been increasingly partisan in terms of Republican and Democrat. Even modest uh, pro-life legislation is now voted down by Democrats. How is it that we'll be able to move forward in states uh, that don't have Republicans controlling all three branches of government 
Um, how are we going to be able to regulate and push back on the abortion licenses in those states? Well, I, two things come to mind. First, I, I'm hoping that once Roe versus Wade is overturned, that uh, it will become more uh, life legislation, pro-life policy will become more bipartisan, uh, because I think it will be easier to point up the negative impact of abortion on women. And I think that needs, I mean, as it was a theme in your 2005 article, I think it needs to be a, a constant theme among pro-lifers that we need to, uh, we need to harness the uh, domestic and the international medical data showing the negative impact on women and bring it into the public debate and bring it into the legislatures and the courts and I think that emphasis that it's bad for both mother and child, I hope will create more bipartisanship behind pro-life protections. So as we're moving into this time, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is not it's more of a when than if um, it goes to the states. What is the church's role in this? So how should Catholics really start to prepare for this or even get involved in that fight now? As you know, there wouldn't be a pro-life movement in the United States if it wasn't for the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, the, the Church was working in the 60s and 70s before uh, evangelicals and Protestants uh, kind of started getting on board in the late 70s, after the 78 midterm elections uh, is often marked as the turning point. Um, so Catholics have a long history of working uh, to protect life in the courts, in the legislatures, in politics. And I think the touchstone is the virtue of prudence, the classical political virtue of prudence. Uh, the, the, uh, the premier class uh, uh, cardinal virtue that guides all the other cardinal virtues, uh, meaning uh, wisdom oriented toward the moral good. And in politics, that means asking um, are we pursuing good goals? Um, are we effectively connecting means and ends? Um, are we holding open the possibility for future progress when we can't um, capture the ideal good right now? And those those uh, those guidelines have, of prudence have uh, guided Catholics uh, over the last 45 years, have produced, I think, the momentum we see and have to continue to guide us. Clark, uh, what things uh, should Catholics and others be looking for uh, as we watch these confirmation hearings unfold, or are, what other things that uh, we haven't addressed in this conversation already that you think are noteworthy or people should be watching out for as we not only go forward with the, con- the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, but also uh, watching uh, pro-life litigation go forward in the courts? Well, with regard to the confirmation hearings, um, I think we kind of need to go back to fundamentals, which is that we need a, the Supreme Court needs a good, well-rounded, experienced, credential judge who understands the difference between being a judge and being a legislator. Uh, They don't make promises. They don't promise how they're going to vote. They are learned in the law, learned in our constitutional principles, and, um, and from that foundation, um, that shows why Roe 
was a terrible decision, uh, is unconstitutional and unjust. But having that framework, that foundation in the law and in good constitutional interpretation is what shows us that Roe is wrong, but also, will uh, I mean, we also need to be concerned about all the future life issues that might uh, be addressed by the Supreme Court. There may be an effort to overturn the decisions of the 1990s that said there's no uh, right to assist suicide. And, uh, you know, how is the court going to deal with future life-related issues? If, if, a, a, if, you, if the Supreme Court has well-rounded judges who are deeply steeped in our uh, history of legal protection of life, they will uh, protect life or understand that maybe the states are the proper vehicle, uh, proper form for protecting life. So those general principles are, are very important. Clark Forsyth is the senior counsel at Americans United for Life and the author of Abuse of Discretion, the Inside Story of Roe v. Wade. I'm personally grateful for you joining us today and pl- plugging my mediocre attempt uh, at a law review article to hash these issues out. So I very much appreciate that from such an esteemed guest. But most importantly, we're grateful for your time with us today and your leadership in the pro-life legal cause. So thank you, Clark Forsyth, for joining us on this podcast. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Rachel. God bless you. Thanks so much. We will be back in a moment to talk about an important document from the U.S. bishops that's observing its 20th anniversary, Living the Gospel of Life. How do we live the gospel of life? We were joined a moment ago by Clark Forsyth of Americans United for Life, a leader on the cause to defend life and law to make sure every life is cherished from conception to natural death and protected in law. Um, The Catholic Church, as Clark said, has been on the forefront of the pro-life movement for decades and has been a leader in that fight, bringing uh, a real authentically pro-life, not simply anti-abortion, but pro-life witness uh, to public policy. Uh, And again, we protect life from womb to tomb and its dignity everywhere and at every stage in between to help us more deeply understand uh, the importance of that cause. 25 years after Roe v. Wade was decided, the U.S. bishops wrote, Living the Gospel of Life, a Challenge to American Catholics. This is a document that's a call to faithful citizenship, a call to protect life from conception and natural death, and a way in which to think about how abortion has impacted who we are as Americans and the American experiment in ordered liberty. So really an important document worth revisiting over and over, uh, especially as, uh, as Clark Forsyth has really dug into it for us about what it means to uh, think about the future of the pro-life movement after uh, Roe v. Wade is possibly overturned, winning hearts and minds, and what's an effective witness, what's a credible witness uh, in doing so. And I think our experience at the Minnesota Catholic Conference, Rachel, is that it's not sufficient to be anti-abortion, that we need to really truly offer a pro-life witness working for the dignity of the immigrant welcoming the stranger, protecting the poor, protecting all of creation, and especially uh, making a stand for the protection of life from conception and natural death, not just fighting abortion, but also uh, fighting against assisted suicide as well. Yeah, and I think one thing that I really appreciate about this document is that the bishops really clearly connect, you know, this this idea and this building the culture of life with 
faithful citizenship and with political life and that that's not we don't only think about that in the context of being anti-abortion you know and I think they say in here one of my favorite parts is they encourage us all particularly Catholics to embrace citizenship not merely as a duty and a privilege but as an opportunity to meaningfully participate in building the culture of life and I just love that because it's just this integration of life you know you're talking about being a credible witness is integrating all aspects of life integrating all these issues together and really putting the person first and as we know abortion falls under that but that's being integrated in your personal life being integrated in your public life and bringing that actually into how you are involved in politics you as our outreach coordinator at Minnesota Catholic Conference you have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people Mm -hmm. and Catholics who are all over uh, the ideological spectrum but it, it seems to me that your experience of uh, bringing the message of the church here locally, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, one that does embrace what the bishops call for, which is a consistent ethic, a consistent ethic of life, that can help us transcend some of the polarization in the church too. Yeah, and I think it's it's a difficult time in politics. I'm not going to deny that. You know, it, it really seems like we're experiencing this um, dirty arena, and it's something that sometimes we're hesitant to get involved in. And I think because of that, we tend to be polarized and there's this huge gap in the middle, you know, and so we need to really reevaluate not how is my party thinking or how is the world thinking about these issues, but how is the church and how is Christ thinking about these issues? And when we do that, we see, you know, that it's integration, that it's not just the Republican issues. It's not just the Democratic issues, but really how can we be for life if we're not for all stages of it and we're not for everybody's life you know the consistent ethic of life that the bishops call for in this document uh, it's been my my experience that it really is a bridge builder and we call Mm -hmm. this the bridge builder podcast precisely because it 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 creates a bridge of dialogue and encounter between different sides of the aisle it makes uh issues that are tend to be seen more as progressive more palatable to catholic to conservatives at the same time issues that are more conservative more palatable to progressives and the church is unique in bridging and overcoming that mm-hmm. polarizing divide between these two issues. They know that our witness um, is comes from a set of principles right. and is not politically motivated or partisan. Mm-hmm. And that's really attractive. So my experience has been that embracing a consistent ethic of life is evangelical in its character. It right. makes people it's attractive to people that we can you can be pro-life and pro-immigrant, pro the poor. Uh, you can fight surrogacy but you can also be uh, for the environment as well. Mm-hmm. That these false either-or uh, solutions that are presented to us all the time, we can overcome those, and the consistent right. ethic of life is that way of doing so. It's evangelical in nature, but it's actually also more effective, right? right? It, yeah. it People, if it's partisan, if, it, if you don't have a credible witness, people put the mental earmuffs on. Mm-hmm. But the consistent ethic of life actually helps people embrace the pro-life cause more readily because they realize they don't have to buy into a whole other bunch of propositions. They can actually be uh, embrace a whole consistent ethic instead of just taking parts of what it means to be pro-life. So in my right. experience, it's actually more effective witness as well. It doesn't water down the pro-life witness by fighting poverty and supporting migrants and workers, but it actually enhances and strengthens mm-hmm. the practical effect of the pro-life witness. Right. And I think I was really challenged by this document because I think there's ways that we all still do that, you know, that we all kind of fall into these dichotomies or um, separating these issues out. And so I would encourage people. One thing that really struck me was, you know, the bishops, 
say in this document that sometimes we refuse to open our mind, open our minds to the truth, you know, and sometimes we refuse to open our minds and think with the mind of the church on this. So, you know, I did this and I would encourage you to do this as well as listeners is, you know, get this document out and sit with it in prayer and really ask the Lord, are there ways or are there principles of the church that I'm really refusing to open my mind to, even in small ways. I think that's really helpful as we enter into the political arena, because as Catholics, we want to be different. We want to act differently. We want to engage differently. And I think that's a really helpful practice to do so. And and I think there's a particular call as well to us as Americans to think about who we are and the values that we bring to everyday situations and how regardless if you've got the right political viewpoint on the cause of life, Mm -hmm. you might not be living that Right. In your day to day life. And I think they get at a really sort of systemic root cause of this ethic that even we as Catholics can fall into is thinking because uh, like Americans, because we have our stand at the height of economic, technological, um, uh, military prowess that we can control and dominate things um, that this, this ethic and this preeminent stand has actually fostered within us a type of consumerism a type of looking at things for their usefulness. And so even though we've been able to master, mm-hmm. in one sense, nature, and this is really, despite all our problems, still, for better or worse, the most powerful empire that's ever existed on the face of the earth. But that comes with consequences. It comes with costs. And American culture, the bishops say 20 years ago, but I think even more so today, um, it's governed and structured according to ideals of utility, productivity, and cost-effectiveness. They Mm -hmm. say it's a culture where moral questions are submerged by a river of goods and services and where the misuse of marketing and public relations Mm -hmm. subverts public life. So how are we being shaped by the culture? Are we imposing these values of utility, especially not just uh, when it comes to the unborn, but especially at the end of life now as assisted suicide Mm -hmm. is becoming uh, more of an issue, more prominent than it even has been in years past, precisely because... Um, we're looking at the value of life in terms of its utility or its usefulness. And when people are no longer useful, um, it's convenient to get rid of them. Some right. people themselves believe that they want to get rid of themselves when right. they don't feel they're useful. So this ethic that the bishops identified uh, 20 years ago is really something for us to pray about and think about as mm-hmm. we live our own lives. Today. Right. And I think it's really we see it dominating, especially in those things that you those um, examples that you brought up It's dominating human dignity. And I think as we pray about those things and how we're acting and even taking on those attitudes ourselves in different ways, it's important to remember that, you know, we are, the kingdom of God works totally differently than the kingdom of man and the kingdom of the world. And so these these utilitarian views, these dominating views, that's what, you know, air quotes works, you know, as or what man think thinks works in, um, in the world, but that's not the way of God. You know, that's not the way of the kingdom of God. And so the real way to, you know, success and triumph and flourishing is the way that the kingdom of God works, which is not domination. It's not using people, it's humility and it's um, progress in that way. And so I think that's that's an important thought to think about too when we're considering what the bishops say here is how are we acting, not as the world acts, but in the kingdom of God here on earth. The document is particularly important because it talks about the role of the laity in infusing gospel values into the public arena, and it's really a reflection on faithful citizenship. Rachel, what do you think are one or two key points that um, the bishops have to say to us about faithful citizenship in this document? The bishops are really driving home here, and they say it in multiple places, that this is not really—faithful citizenship is not an optional thing. 
You know, it's not a thing that, well, I'm partic- as Rachel, I'm particularly interested in so that as a Catholic, that can kind of be my shtick of something I do. But really, as a baptized Catholics, life must be proclaimed in all realms of the public arena. And so all isn't asterisks disclude politics, you know. So I think that's a huge thing to remember is really it's a call and a duty by virtue of our baptism and that God gives us the grace to do it. Um, and really that there are a lot of tools available for us to do it as well. And in doing so, I think they clarify as well that it's not simply sufficient to uh, fight poverty, to fight for affordable housing, to protect mm-hmm. the earth, to work for the well-being of migrants and workers. But as they say, quoting Pope John Paul, it is impossible to further the common good without acknowledging and defending the right to life mm-hmm. upon which all the other inalienable rights of individuals are founded and from which they develop. So you can't simply uh, justify the lack of uh, promoting the cause of life, defending life in law, simply by saying that you're right because you're right on these other issues. You don't really need to worry about that. Or that politicians who are good on some things but who don't protect the cause of life, they're they're okay too, as though these are just a bunch of issues that we can sort of balance the pros and cons. The bishops say the right to life and its protection from conception and natural death is the foundation of the house. So right. some really bracing insights and things for us to pray and consider about as we examine our own witness in the public square. Mm-hmm. Living the Gospel of Life 1998, especially with all the talk of Roe v. Wade and contra- confer- uh, confirmation hearings for Supreme the Supreme Court, something to revisit and reflect on from Catholic, classic Catholic social teaching. How do you take the next step? How do you translate your faith into public life? How do you live faithful citizenship? As Rachel said a moment ago, not simply something optional, but a core component of discipleship. We are called to love our neighbor. And just as we start hospitals, work for the well-being of the poor, um, engage in all sorts of ministries, engage in the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, participating in public life is a way in which Catholics express their love of neighbor, helping to foster the common good and building structures that allow people to flourish. But again, we would not be doing our duty if we weren't offering practical tips for translating your faith into public life. So on this segment of the Bridge Builder con- uh, podcast, Rachel Herbeck offers some important suggestions about how to do that. The last and our last podcast, Rachel talked about just getting to know your legislator. Who represents you? Something that people often overlook. You can't really build good public policy if you're not in relationship with our policy makers. So that's a first step. Rachel, what else uh, can we do? How else can we be brick makers in the bridge building process? Right. So in the the document we just talked about, um, Evangelium Vitae, they say in there as well that it also extends to the the voting booth, right? So building the culture of life also extends to the voting booth, and that's really particular to our action items today because um, here in Minnesota we're in an election year, and so we've got some important dates coming up that we want you to be aware of and that we want you to take practical action. So Tuesday, August 14th here in Minnesota is the primary election day, and so this is really important, right, because the primary election determines what candidates will be on the ballot in November. And so it's really important that, one, you educate yourself on who the candidates are. Maybe you're listening to this and you're like, "Uh oh, I've heard that it's an election year, but haven't really done any more digging other than that. And so that's the first thing. Get educated. 
and get out there and vote. So we have a bunch of great resources on our website, again, mncatholic.org, um, for election year resources. I would encourage you to get out there and look up who the candidates are and put those up to Catholic, put their values up to Catholic social teaching and the, the gospel of life and building the, go- the gospel of life and see how they match up. And as you get to know the candidates, uh, one thing that we provide is a candidate questionnaire uh, with issues that are really on the front burner for us uh, at the Capitol. Yeah, so that's a really straightforward way. It's a resource that'll be right on our website. And it's, as we talked about last podcast, building relationships with your legislators. What a better way than to send them a questionnaire, send these candidates a candidate questionnaire to see really where do they match up on these things that are important to Catholics. And voting, as the bishops tell us, is about making an informed decision, first by forming your conscience and Mm -hmm. then knowing the candidates and knowing the issues. Um, And the questionnaire is one way that you can get to know Uh, the candidates a little bit more clearly outside of simply looking up a website uh, or listening to the boilerplate milk toast things that (laughs) candidates sometimes say about themselves or their positions, not uh, reasonably wanting to offend anyone if they don't have to, but it's reasonable to put them on the spot and they need to tell you where they're going to, what they're going to do when they get elected into office. Now, uh, our primaries are coming out. The primaries are partisan primaries, but anyone can vote in the partisan primary. So you can affiliate uh, for the purposes of the primary with one party or another uh, and elect the candidates. And we've got some big races coming up. We've got statewide races, governor, uh, attorney general. Uh, these are going to be uh, big statewide races. Our whole state house is going to be mm-hmm. up for election. Two U.S. senators yeah. uh, running for re-election, Senator Tina Smith, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and our whole congressional delegation. So even though this is not a presidential year, for Minnesotans, this mm-hmm. is going to be a very, very impactful election. Yeah for the next four years. Yeah, so you have a lot of chances to really make your voice heard um, in an earlier on stage to then help move people forward that you want to represent you here in the state. And so Catholics uh, li- and those listening, anyone can uh, go to mncatholic.org, see our election year resources, particularly our candidate questionnaire. Uh, would really encourage folks to get out, meet, build relationships with their legislators. Legislators rely on you Uh, to know what's important and what things they should be working on. And again, if we're not participating, uh, someone else who you may disagree with will be participating. So Mm -hmm. your voice matters. Your voice is important. Be a faithful citizen. And uh, starting that process of looking at who is running in the primary is a good way to do so because elections do, in fact, matter. That's a wrap for today's Bridge Builder podcast. Again, a big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM uh, for hosting us today in their studios and our sponsor for this podcast, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council, the Knights of Columbus, Building the Domestic Church. And thank you for listening. Make sure you share this podcast with your friends and family. And what better way to end a podcast of great conversations than with great sacred music? Here is the ancient Gregorian chant Laudate Dominum, sung by the National Catholic Youth Choir at St. John's University. Laudate Dominum was the chant the Carmelite martyrs of Compiègne sang sang as they ascended the scaffold to the guillotine in France during the French Revolution, a powerful witness of faith and martyrdom that we remember to this day. Their feast day was July 17th. Carmelite martyrs of Compiègne, pray for us. God bless you all. Thanks again for listening.